Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is our first reading. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20 is our text Uh, this morning. We'll read verses 6 through 8 and then on to uh, verse 14 through 20. Revelation 14, beginning at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. And to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven, uh, the heaven and the earth, and, and sea and springs of water. And behold, Another angel, a second one, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the land is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the land, And the land was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called out with a loud voice to him who had put, rather who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the land, 
because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle upon the land and gathered the clusters of the vine of the land and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is God's word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Let's pray together. Eternal and merciful Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word that you have given uh, the, the, the word that you have uh, granted, the revelation of your holy character and your holy decrees and uh, your holy judgments that you have determined. We thank you, O God, that we have these wondrous truths encapsulated in the holy scriptures, and we pray that you would bless your holy word and its preaching now, that Christ would be exalted in your word, that we might see Jesus lifted up, exalted in the heavens on his throne, and so that this might be, O Lord, we plead the promise that you've given us concerning your Holy Spirit, not only that he indwells each believer in Jesus Christ, but that Uh, The Spirit himself flows in our hearts like springs of water, giving thirsty souls that which they need to abide in you. So we ask, O Lord, we plead the promise of the Holy Spirit that he would lead us in the truth. We might discover your will for us. You would open our eyes, O God, to behold wonderful things from your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verses 14 through 20 here in this 14th chapter is the last section in the fourth cycle of visions that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to the Apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. In the previous section, in verses 6 and 7, the gospel is presented primarily as a message of judgment. The angel is preaching the eternal gospel. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. What we find in the, in the, the rest of that section through verse 19 uh, is a, a, a picture of judgment upon God's vineyard whom here in this section in uh, 6 to 13, he calls Babylon. Babylon, the great harlot, will later be uh, dealt with in chapters uh, 16 and and 17. And uh, there are clear markers there that, that Babylon the harlot is the apostate Jews. And so, because this is primarily a proclamation of God's judgment, not only a proclamation of his judgment, but primarily a proclamation of his judgment, there have been some interpreters who have supposed that this is not the same gospel uh, that 
we have outlined for us in the New Testament. This is somehow a different gospel, this eternal gospel that the, the uh, first angel in that last section we dealt with last week uh, is, is, is preaching a different gospel. We, we noticed last week that every element that we find in this gospel is a, is a uh, that, the, that the, this first angel in the last section preached, is an element that we find in uh, the New Testament gospel. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment uh, has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. All of this uh, bears exact rem- uh, resemblance to what we find in the apostolic gospel, the gospel that we know, the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ. Paul declares, Romans 1.16, that the gospel is God's power, salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then he goes on in uh, that same chapter, uh, verses 18 to 32, to say that in that gospel is also revealed the wrath of God from heaven. We concluded, therefore, that we must not ignore this judicial aspect of the gospel, the eternal gospel uh, that we are called to proclaim to our generation must include a warning that God's judgment is coming. Fittingly, in this last section of this fourth cycle of visions, in the Revelation to John, the gospel harvest is depicted in verses 14 through 20. While beginning with a blessing, the blessing of salvation, it also contains the element of judgment. Shouldn't surprise us now that we've seen that judgment is an essential component of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our text shows us that believers in Jesus Christ will assuredly be saved from eternal judgment, while unbelievers will suffer thoroughgoing eternal judgment. We have two things then in our text. The first place, the gospel harvest of salvation, in verses 14 through 16. And secondly, the gospel harvest of judgment, in verses 17 to 20. The gospel harvest of salvation and the gospel harvest of judgment. First then, in verses 14 to 16, the gospel harvest of salvation. Verse 14 is the centerpiece of uh, this whole section in, uh, from uh, verse 6 here in, Re- in chapter 14 to verse 20. We've seen through John's eyes in this vision three angels making proclamations to the land of Israel in verses 6 through 13. Now in our text this morning, three more angels appear in verse 15 and 17 to 20, and they perform symbolic actions over the land, our text says. This last section of chapter 14 begins with a vision of the white cloud and the Son of Man, in verse 14. Now we're, uh, if, if, if we uh, remember the Old Testament, we should be familiar with uh, the imagery of the Lord coming with clouds or riding on, on the clouds, that's, that's a a very familiar image, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament. 
Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18 on Mount Sinai. You remember the, uh, the great storm clouds that, that were on uh, Mount Sinai. Isaiah 19, verse 1. Uh, uh, Zephaniah 1, verses 14 to 15. We won't turn to those Old Testament scriptures at, at this point, but nevertheless, uh, if you look at these passages, you will see uh, this imagery of uh, the clouds. But the imagery of the clouds is also f- familiar to us in the New Testament. Jesus ascended into the clouds, remember, after he appeared that last time to his disciples. The cloud received him. And uh, remember here in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1, the strong angel who we said uh, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself is clothed with a cloud. This is very, very familiar imagery uh, to us. At Sinai and in Zephaniah's prophecy, for example, The clouds were dark, but here in Revelation 14 and verse 14, the cloud is white, and that's significant. The Spirit's purpose for referring to this cloud in in this context, in John's vision, is understood from its connection with the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I know that uh, our, uh, our English translations have Son of Man uh, not in capital as it, as it ought, but in, with, in uh, small letters there. But it ought to be in large letters because this is the Son of Man that... Uh, that John sees in, in this vision. And we read uh, in this passage from which this, this vision is primarily drawn, we, we read here in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Holy Spirit's purpose then here in John's vision by and giving us... Uh, Uh, Christ, this vision of Christ, the Son of Man, he's quite clear. Let the beasts do their worst. The Son of Man has ascended in the clouds and received everlasting dominion over all people and nations. His kingdom will never be overthrown. He will never have a successor. As I was meditating on this passage uh, this week and in preparation for this sermon, I, I kept thinking of um, what we've been dealing with in our exposition of, of kings and how especially uh, God promised that, that, they were, that he would, uh, there would always be a lamp uh, in the Davidic dynasty, uh, that there would always be one who was seated on the throne, but uh, one king after another, uh, uh, one king after another of, of Judah, the line of Judah, is succeeded by another king. And we know that there are lapses uh, in the record there in, in kings where there's not a Davidic king. On the throne, when that throne is us- the throne of Judah is usurped by someone outside the line of David, 
But this passage tells us why God can make that promise of the lamp to the, in the Davidic dynasty because Christ, the Son of Man, is enthroned in heaven forever and ever and there will not be a successor. That's the glorious message of the Son of Man seated on this white cloud, enthroned upon the cloud. It's also clear that this vision is not some future coming of Christ to the earth, as some suppose, but the result of Christ's original ascension into the clouds. John's vision doesn't show Christ coming in the cloud, but in fact, he's already seated on the cloud, installed on his heavenly throne. Earlier in chapter 14, verse 6, we're shown the Israelite leaders sitting over the land, over against them, here in this last section of chapter 14, sits the Son of Man, enthroned, the Lord Christ, on his throne of the glory cloud. The king here in this vision to John has not only a golden crown on his head, but a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 14, another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come because the harvest of the land is ripe. The first angel uh, in this second triad of angels uh, in chapter 14, here in 14 to 20, repeats what the first angel of the previous triad had said in verse 7, the hour has come. This time, however, uh, the emphasis falls not on God's judgment, but on his gather, the gathering of God's elect people. This vision is connected with the Son of Man's coming, not on the last day, but upon the gospel harvest of of blessing in the first century. Its counterpart is is found in uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, 24. Uh, We dealt with this passage before we began began, uh, our study of of Revelation. Matthew 24, verses uh, 29 to 31, uh, we read, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, And all the tribes of the land will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. To what does this refer Some think it refers to Christ's second coming. I disagree. And I said so much as we worked through this 24th chapter in Matthew uh, before we began our exposition of Revelation. Why is that? Well, Jesus goes on to say, Now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branch, uh, verse 32, here in Matthew 24, when its branch has already become tender, and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, what things? The things of which he has just spoken here in the Olivet Discourse, previous section here in Matthew 24. When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. And verse 34 cinches it. Truly, I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things have taken place. What generation? The present generation of Israel. So this has taken place in, in, in the lifetime of those who are hearing these words of, of this would take place in the lifetime of those who, would, who are hearing these words, especially in the lifetime of the apostles and of the apostate Jews that were alive at that time. That's the harvest of salvation. Uh, that Jesus is speaking of. And uh, you can hear this uh, uh, in, in Matthew. Uh, I shouldn't have turned away so quickly. Uh, you, can, you can hear um, Jesus speaking uh, here in, in Matthew 24. Uh, yes, you hear him speaking of, of uh, the, the sun being darkened and the moon uh, won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Yes, that sounds like uh, the end of the world, doesn't it? But that's simply, uh, as I mentioned as, as I was preaching through this passage, that's apocalyptic language. Uh, that's the, the Old Testament prophets being imported into the New Testament uh, to, uh, as, as Jesus speaks about this judgment that will fall upon apostate Israel in the first century. And then... Uh, he will send forth his angels, or remember, we can translate this word angels, messengers, who are the messengers. These are uh, the apostles. These are gospel preachers. He will send forth his uh, angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together uh, his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So what's Jesus speaking of here? He's speaking about the gospel harvest of salvation that was taking place in the first century uh, among uh, those who heard the gospel and believed in the gospel. Jesus, remember, uh, described the kingdom of God as a great harvest. Matthew 4, verses 26 to 29, uh, in, in which the one who has sown the seed also puts in the sickle, uh, we read there in Matthew 4, when the crop is ripe. He told his disciples, John 4, verses 35 to, to 36, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the field. See that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving his wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Accordingly, the first angel here, representing his earthly counterparts, calls on the Son of Man to put in his sickle, mentioned seven times in our text, and reap. The angel is echoing those prayers for the harvest. Jesus told his disciples to pray in obedience to Christ's command. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. From this enthronement cloud, then, King Jesus answers the prayers of his church, swinging his sickle over the land, sending out harvesters, the land is reaped, the fruit is gathered into his kingdom. It's a wondrous picture of what took place when the apostolic gospel went forth. Want to read about what's being pictured here in, in this uh, first section in the harvest of uh, the gospel harvest of salvation? You just read the book of Acts. 
and you see what what John is seeing with his eyes in this vision. You see uh, what John is seeing in symbols. You see in in letters, in words, in sentences, in, in paragraphs, exactly what John is seeing here. You see, don't you agree that this makes Revelation understandable? We're not, we're not reading about things that we cannot understand here. Yes, they, uh, the symbols aren't always the easiest to, uh, to interpret, but if we have a few interpretive keys, we, we understand what, what's going on here. A revelation isn't a mystery. It's simply the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed in, in symbols. Are you praying for the gospel harvest of salvation? Are you praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest in our day? Do you see how significant this vision is here in Revelation? This is what what God's doing. He's doing this in our day. He's continuing to do this uh, in our day. Are you praying? Are you asking the one who sits enthroned on the clouds to put in his sickle and reap his harvest among all the nations of the earth. God's elect people. Elect people in every nation await the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said in his day to his disciples. The fields are white for harvest, so they are today. We ought to to be praying, asking the Lord fervently as we gather for corporate worship, as we gather at the the weekly prayer meeting, as you sit in in secret in your prayer closet at home, as you're praying in your families, we ought to be praying for this great gospel harvest of salvation. Secondly, the gospel harvest of judgment in verses 17 to 20. In verse 17, the vision to John returns once again to the theme of judgment. Just as we noted last week that uh, the proclamation of the eternal gospel includes the element of salvation and judgment, so also the, the gospel harvest includes both elements of salvation and judgment. Remember in the parable of the tares, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, Jesus taught that in the time of the kingdom harvest, God will say to the reapers, gather up the tares to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. There we have both elements of salvation and judgment. The grain harvest of Revelation 14, 14 to 16, uh, uh, we, we've said, symbolizes this, uh, the gathering of the church for salvation, gathering the wheat of God's elect for salvation, while the grape harvest of verses 17 to 20 symbolizes the gathering of the tares, apostate Israel for the judgment of excommunication from God's covenant. Remember that Genesis chapter 21 records how the recognition of Isaac as the child of promise required the casting out of the bondwoman, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. And remember that Paul saw this, uh, this account in Genesis 21 as an allegory. We usually think of allegory as a, as a, a not-so-good word when it comes to uh, uh, interpreting the, the Bible, but Paul uh, says in uh, Galatians chapter 4 uh, that 
he sees that passage uh, there in Genesis 21 as an allegory of the rejection of old Israel and the recognition of the church as the heir of the promise. And Paul spells this out to the churches of Galatia there in chapter 4. And we've only dealt, dealt with this more uh, recently, haven't we, in, uh, as uh, Elder Gerges has been, uh, has been taking us through our, our study uh, in uh, Galatians, here in Galatians 4, verses uh, 22 and, and following. This is worthwhile, uh, worth very, very much worth our consideration here as we think about uh, what God is doing in this vision to John. Galatians 4.22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, by one, uh, one by the, the, the bondwoman and one by the, the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free mo- woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking... This is actually, uh, interestingly, the, the Greek word from which we get our word, allegory. This is allegorically speaking, for these two women are two covenants, the one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children uh, who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery uh, with her children. So Paul here is is telling us that allegorically speaking, uh, we could also say symbolically speaking, Hagar represents the present apostate Jerusalem of Paul's day. But the Jerusalem above is free, Galatians 4.26, for For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. Far more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking, of course, he's speaking to the remnant of believing Jews and Israel and as well as God-fearers who have come out from the Gentiles. He's speaking of them as uh, children of the promise. But as at that time he who, is, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free woman. Christians, whether from the believing remnant of Israel or from the Gentiles, are the true children of the heavenly Jerusalem. And Paul here in, in, uh, in uh, Galatians 4 is contrasting the earthly Jerusalem, apostate Israel, unbelieving Jerusalem, with the heavenly Jerusalem. And in Revelation 21 and verse 2, Paul calls... The true children of God, the new Jerusalem, they are the children of the promise. They are the heirs of the promise. They are the new Jerusalem. The second angel here in uh, this second part in the gospel harvest of judgment comes out of the temple uh, which is in heaven, verse 17, to assist in the harvest with his sharp sickle. In verses 17 to 20 of our text, the vision shifts from 
the first harvest, the harvest of salvation, to the harvest of judgment by taking us back uh, to the visions of, of Revelation in the seven seals, drawing uh, there from its uh, imagery of wrath. In, cha- in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, we saw through John's eyes the martyrs who were under uh, the throne uh, in heaven. We're given this heavenly vision. And they're gathered, remember, around the altar of incense. They're offering up imprecatory prayers for vengeance. Imprecatory prayers are simply prayers for, for, for God to take his vengeance on those who have slain his servants, upon God's enemies and our enemies. So there are, are the saints in heaven. They're gathered around the golden altar of, of incense, uh, which you remember was one of the pieces of furniture in uh, the, the tabernacle and uh, the, the, the earthly tabernacle and the, um, the, uh, the earthly temple. And here uh, we're, we're seeing into heaven. Uh, we're seeing the angel. And we're seeing uh, in chapter 6, we're seeing these martyrs uh, under the throne, and they're, they're crying out to God uh, that he would bring uh, vengeance. And shortly after that scene, just prior to the sounding of the seven trumpets, an angel took the censer of the saints' prayers who are before this altar of incense, And he filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it on the land. Chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, And there followed peals of thunder and voices and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And now, at the close of this fourth cycle of visions in Revelation, John sees the same angel that he saw earlier, the angel of the fire. Chapter 14, verse 18, the one who has power over the fire, the, the same one that took uh, fire out of the, uh, the, uh, at the altar of incense, out of the censer, and threw it down uh, upon the earth. John sees him. The third angel of uh, the, the harvest comes specifically from the altar of the martyrs' prayers and the saints' prayers. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 3. Calling on the second angel, the one holding the sickle, to act as God's agent of judgment. Rendering judgment in answer to the prayers of the martyrs and the prayers of the saints. It's, it's vital that we see this connection between what's going on in the vision of the harvest and what took place earlier. He says, put forth your sickle, put forth your sharp sickle, this third angel says, and gather the clusters from the vine of the land because her grapes are ripe. God's vineyard, Israel, remember we read that in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 5 today, who is God's vineyard, Israel, is God's vineyard, and Israel is ripe for the harvest of judgment. So the angel swung his sickle to the land. Verse 19, he gathered the clusters from the land, that is the land of Israel, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. 
the repeated references here to the land six times in verses 15 to 19, combined with the imagery of the vine of the land, emphasizes that this harvest of judgment is a judgment on the land of Israel in particular. The imagery uh, here in in, uh, verse 19 is based on Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6, a prophecy of the destruction of Edom, which which God, uh, which that prophecy describes as uh, God crushing the grapes of the winepress in judgment over the nation of Eden. Uh, I, Edom, rather. I have trodden the wine alone, and from uh, the, the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath, and their juice is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought deliverance to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and brought down their juice to the earth. Significantly, in this vision, uh, in verse 20, the winepress is trodden, and it's trodden outside the city. And the blood came up out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of uh, the equivalent of 200 miles, literally 1,600 stadia. Historically, the harvest of grapes was trodden in the winepress when God's vineyard, Israel, was judged definitively in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Theologically, the fulfillment of this text is related to Christ's sacrifice for that was the definitive shedding of blood outside the city. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, Hebrews 13, verses 11 to 13, tells us the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also The writer to the Hebrews says that he might sanctify the people through his blood suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking a city which is to come. Outside the city, therefore, was the place of judgment where the bodies of the sacrificed animals were disposed of. And it was the place of judgment where Christ's blood was shed by rebellious Israel. In the imagery that we have before us then here in Revelation chapter 14, The blood flowing outside the city ultimately belongs to Christ. The blood flowed from outside the city to the city, uh, uh, Jerusalem, and uh, overflowed into the walls of Jerusalem when uh, in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, that city was filled with blood. But ultimately... In the ultimate sense, the definitive shedding of blood outside the city was the shedding of Christ's blood 
In AD 70, the vine of Israel is cut down and it is trampled in the wine press. But this destruction is the culmination of a process that lasted over 40 years. It began outside the city when one whom they despised and rejected as their Messiah trod the winepress alone. And of the people, there was none with him. It was really in that moment when Christ hung on that cross outside of Jerusalem that Jerusalem fell. The gospel harvest of judgment on first century apostate Israel depicted in this vision to John in verses 17 to 20 is a microcosm a picture in miniature of the macrocosmic judgment of the last day. God has fixed a day. Paul preached in Athens on Mars Hill. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world through a man, by the one he has appointed, Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And Paul preached there over 2,000 years ago to those who were there to listen. Therefore, God is saying that everyone, having, having God having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent and believe in Christ. So we must, as a God's people, uh, as if, if, if we're outside the camp, if we're outside of the new Jerusalem, if we do not believe in Christ, then we're being called here to repent and believe uh, in Christ, uh, to fear God, to give Him glory, because the hour of judgment is coming. Worship Him who made heaven and earth and the the sea and uh, springs of water. Don't wait until uh, you think you're good enough to approach Christ, good enough to approach God. Don't wait to heed this warning of coming judgment. But rather, flee to Christ now. Flee from the wrath that's coming. Flee to Him now by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus Christ. And of course, the, uh, this warning uh, we said last week is meant for us as well. The warning of coming judgment both in the previous section, in chap- in, in here in chapter 14, verses 6 to 13, and in the section we've been considering today, we're being called to look at this judgment and to fear God, to flee to Christ, not merely once for our salvation, but to daily flee to Christ in Him and Him alone is our salvation. He is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our strong deliverer. He's our shield. And there is no other. We must fear God. We must give Him glory because the hour of His judgment is coming. The great gospel harvest of salvation was inaugurated in the age of the apostles, but it continues until the last day when Jesus comes again and all his elect will be caught up together in the clouds with him forever.
And you and I are called to join in this gospel harvest. In our age, as those who are heirs of the promise of the true heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, we are called to participate by praying for the gospel harvest, fervently asking God to hear our cries for vengeance upon his martyrs, those who are being persecuted, put to death throughout the world today for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of their Savior Jesus Christ, to have maintained their testimony to the end, even unto death, as faithful witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be praying that God will bring vengeance in our day, in our time, on enemies of the gospel, and participating ourselves, sowing the seed, every opportunity that you have to speak to those who are outside of Christ, every opportunity to speak to your neighbors, every opportunity to speak to those with whom you work and spend a great deal of time with, to your family members, to your friends and to strangers that you meet in the street or in the marketplace or on an airplane. Think of these as your participation in the great harvest of the gospel. Think of these opportunities as sowing even as God has called us to be sowers of the word and also reapers. Remember what Jesus said. Remember the promise that he gives to those who sow and, and reap. He who reaps, reaps life eternal. It's a marvelous promise from the Lord of the harvest, even Christ Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, we would be those who fear you. We would be those, O oh God, who hear the warning that you have given us in these visions in Revelation chapter 14, of coming judgment, those who fear you, O Lord, those who give you glory, who make it our greatest priority in this life to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Because we know that the hour of your judgment is coming. Enable us, therefore, to worship you as we ought. To worship you as the creator of all things. Heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And the springs of water that flow from them. We, we do worship you now together as we Consider with fear and trembling this great judgment that is coming. But we do not fear, O Lord, in the sense of, of being subject to that judgment. We fear you, O God, because you have delivered us from that judgment. And we revere you, O Lord our God, for the great salvation that you have wrought for us through our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to walk as those who know these things. Help us to be faithful in our sowing and reaping. Where we live our daily lives, in our neighborhoods and in the workplace, in the marketplace, on the streets, 
among our, our neighbors and friends and co-workers and strangers. We might be faithful to you, O oh Lord. Help us. You know how timid we are in our approach to speaking the gospel to others. We pray that you'd give us greater boldness to speak a word for the Son of Man seated on the cloud, even our Lord Jesus Christ, our great King enthroned in heaven. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.